I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig with details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This Day in History class is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, and welcome to This Day in History class, a show that believes the lessons of the past can guide those in the present toward a better future. I'm Gabe Luzier, and today we're talking about a dark day in German history when dozens of towns across the country were lit by the light of burning books. The day was May 10th, 1933. More than 25,000 books were destroyed during a series of book burnings held in college towns throughout Germany. Students from 62 institutions of higher learning participated in the bonfires. The events were staged as part of an ongoing effort to force German arts and culture into agreement with the Nazi party. All of the books put to flame that evening had been targeted for their supposedly un-German spirit. This included works of Jewish authors such as Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein, as well as American authors like Jack London, Upton Sinclair, Ernest Hemingway, and Helen Keller. The students who burned these books believed they were helping to purge their country of a corrupting foreign influence. In reality, they were showing the world what the Nazi regime truly stood for, an action that would later prove to be self-defeating. It might come as a surprise to some to hear that massive public book burnings were instigated by university students rather than by officials of the Nazi party. 
But of course, the party's rhetoric had been designed to incite this kind of cultural violence. In the early 1930s, as the Nazi party continued to grow its military strength, it also worked to make Nazi ideas more appealing to the masses. Key to this task was Josef Goebbels, the head of the Ministry of Popular Enlightenment and Propaganda. Under his supervision, the ministry established broad cultural control over the German people, dictating what the national press said and which books and films were allowed to circulate. The ministry also established the Hitler Youth, an indoctrination program that all Aryan children in Germany over the age of six were required to join. All of these efforts aided the Nazi regime by creating a culture of fear and exclusion, one that many people had been groomed to accept at a young age and then willingly embraced by the time they went to college. The book burnings of May 10th took place in 34 different university towns, but the evening's largest and best documented bonfire was on Opera Square in Berlin the site directly between the city's opera house and university. At this intersection of art and education, students prepared to burn a collection of blacklisted books, most of which they had looted from bookstores and libraries. At the center of the square, they erected a five-foot-high wooden pyre around a granite slab and then soaked the logs with gasoline. By the time of the ceremony that evening, a crowd of about 40,000 people had gathered in the rain to watch. They were joined by 5,000 torch-bearing students who marched into the square singing Nazi anthems as a live band played along. Once the fire was lit, students made their way to a podium one by one. Each recited a short fire oath into the microphone, explaining which offending author they had chosen to consign to the flames and why. Then, they hurled their chosen book into the fire below and yielded the stage to the next student. The hours-long event had been organized primarily by local students, both men and women alike, but several professors also helped with the planning, as did Nazi party officials. When the students contacted Goebbels to be guest speaker at the burning, he was thrilled to see the seeds of his efforts bear such barbaric fruit. Stepping up to the swastika-draped podium in Berlin's Opera Square, the Minister of Propaganda declared that, quote, The era of morbid Jewish intellectualism is now at an end. The future German man will not just be a man of books, but a man of character. It is to this end that we want to educate you, and thus you do well in this midnight hour to commit to the flames the evil spirit of the past. The fiery speech wasn't directed only at those in attendance. In helping coordinate the event, the Nazi party ensured it would receive full-scale media coverage, not only in Germany, but across the entire world. Word of the planned book burnings had reached the U.S. by late April, and as a result, American newsreel crews were on the scene in Berlin, right alongside the Germans. In addition, Radio stations broadcast all the speeches, songs, and fire oaths from that evening, sparking praise from like-minded listeners and fear and outrage from virtually everyone else. Many American authors spoke out against the book burnings, both before and after they took place. 
One especially notable reaction came from author and disability activist Helen Keller. Her writing had been judged un-German on multiple counts. Not only did Keller champion the rights of disabled persons, industrial workers, and women, her very existence was a reproach to Nazi ideology. Keller had lost her hearing and sight after contracting a high fever as a child. But despite these challenges, she went on to live a rich and rewarding life and helped countless others by example. She was living proof that eugenics was both unscientific and unethical. So, of course, Nazi officials were quick to suppress her writings. When Keller learned her books were scheduled for destruction, she responded by penning an open letter to German students. She warned that their efforts would inevitably fail, writing, quote, History has taught you nothing if you think you can kill ideas. Tyrants have tried to do that often before, and the ideas have risen up in their might and destroyed them. You can burn my books and the books of the best minds in Europe, but the ideas in them have seeped through a million channels and will continue to quicken other minds. I deplore the injustice and unwisdom of passing on to unborn generations the stigma of your deeds. That may sound like idealistic sentiment, but Keller was proven right in short order. After the bonfires on May 10th, more than 100,000 people marched in New York City to protest Nazi policies, and similar demonstrations were held in numerous other towns and cities. The book burnings took place a world away and had no direct impact on American life, but the image of the flames and what they represented provoked a powerful response from millions of observers. The memory of that disgust took root as well. By the time World War II began a few years later, the imagery of the book burnings had become a catch-all symbol for all the tyrannies of Nazism. That symbolism lived on well after the defeat of the Nazi party in Germany, thus fulfilling Keller's prediction that the stigma of the burnings would long outlive those who struck the match. In that sense, all of the pomp and stagecraft in Berlin backfired big time. It may have won the Nazis some new supporters, and it certainly sent a strong message to opponents of the regime, but by serving as a not-so-subtle policy statement, the book burnings also tipped the hand of the Nazi party. Columnist Walter Lippmann explained this best when reporting the bonfires for the New York Tribune. He warned that, quote, The ominous symbolism of these bonfires is that there is a government in Germany which means to teach its people that their salvation lies in violence. Many others picked up on that message and began pushing their leaders to take the growing threat of Nazism more seriously, to varying degrees of success. These early warners knew that anti-intellectual violence was just the beginning. As German poet Heinrich Hein once wrote, quote, Where one burns books, one will soon burn people. That's a notion that may have given some German readers pause following the events, but alas, the works of Heinrich Hein were part of the bonfire. I'm Gabe Luzier, and hopefully you now know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. 
If you want to keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHCshow. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can always send them my way at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks to Chandler Mays for producing the show, and thank you for listening. I'll see you back here again tomorrow for another day in history class. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 